Good morning, people of God. What a joy it is to sing praises to God. You know, as we were singing just now, I was thinking uh, of all of the things that singing to the Lord corporately accomplishes. You know, if you think about it, it is a form of prayer because we are singing to God. We're praising Him. We are bringing our praises to Him through song. So it's prayer. It's a form of biblical meditation because the songs, if rightly chosen, are filled with God's Word. They're filled with Scripture. And so as we sing over and over and over again, we are ruminating, we're chewing the cud, as it were. We're meditating on God's truth. And then finally, we're edifying one another. As we sing these praises, we're declaring God's glory to our neighbors, to those who are standing to our left, to our right, behind us, in front of us. So just think about all of that when we sing praises to God. When we sing in church with God's people, all of those things are being accomplished. It's great to be back with you this morning. It is just a reminder when you open up God's Word to preach it, just what a privilege and, and a weighty thing it is to, to preach to God's people and to look out and see all of the faces. Uh, even earlier, just to hear Stan's this sweet, intimate prayer to the Lord, and just to think uh, who you're preaching to, preaching to the saints of the living God, preaching to the precious, blood-bought children of the living God. What a blessing it is to preach to you, to bring God's Word to you, and I pray that you are excited to be here with God's people this morning, that, that you are ready to dig in and work as we come to Exodus chapter 6, verses 14 to 30. So if you'll go ahead and go there with me in your Bibles. I'm grateful to Trey for his sermon last Sunday, for bringing us up to the mountain peak of Christology in Philippians 2. What an important passage that is. And for giving us such a clear affirmation of Christian orthodoxy. Uh, I just love the way that he put before us what it is that, that we must understand and hold to to be Christian. Uh, that to deviate from the truth of God, regardless of, of, of some sort of uh, sentimental kind of uh, emotional so-called relationship that you think you have with the Lord, uh, God's truth must be our foundation. And so to, to, to claim a relationship with God, regardless of how uh, affectional or emotional that relationship may be in your own experience, but to depart from the truth of God is to leave Christianity. It is to go to something else. So I so appreciated uh, Trey's affirmation of that and his explanation of those glorious verses, those mountain peak verses of the doctrine of Christ. Over the last several weeks in Exodus, we've been looking at the trial before the rescue. We have run into a trial among the people, a trial within a trial. There's already a huge trial, but this is the deepening of that trial before God rescues his people. Moses and Aaron <clears throat> have delivered God's message to Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Pharaoh rejects Yahweh's message, and instead of just moving on and saying no, he decides out of spite and hate, out of cruelty, and out of a, a desire to assert himself over this Yahweh 
who has brought this message to him through Moses and Aaron, this Pharaoh cracks down on the people beyond their ability to bear it. Now they will not be given straw to make bricks, but they will be required to make the same number of bricks. When they fail, as they inevitably will, their foremen are beaten. So there are Israelites among the slaves who are in charge of overseeing and recording the bricks that will be made and checking those boxes and making sure that the right tally is produced. And when that doesn't happen, the pressure that the slave masters or the taskmasters put on the foremen is meant to motivate them to get the people to produce what they obviously cannot. The foremen respond by cursing Moses. <laughs> Moses and Aaron have come and spoken to Pharaoh, and so the foremen, in their oppression, in their suffering, they come out from Pharaoh, they see Moses, of all people, and they just begin spitting venom in Moses' face. They curse him, and then Moses turns around, And he complains to God. He grumbles to God in the boldest of terms, accusing God, questioning God's plan, questioning in part God's integrity. You haven't done what you said you were going to do. Why did you even send me? This is a bad plan from the beginning. He complains to God. It is honest. It is transparent. It is from the heart. And in those respects, it is good and real and raw because God knows what's in our hearts. You may not say it with your mouth, but God knows everything that's in your heart. So you might as well speak to God about it. And that's what Moses does. But of course, he does so in a way that is, to say the least, disrespectful to the Lord, dishonoring to God and not trusting of God, questioning God's character and so forth. What does God do? Well, God could have blasted him, could have turned him into a little pile of ashes, a little pile of dust, turned him back to dust, just as God told Adam, from dust you were taken and to dust you shall return. Well, God could have immediately evaporated Moses, but he does not. He simply responds with reassurance. And this is our Father, our Heavenly Father, our gracious and kind and patient God. He responds with reassurance of what he will do. And he gives his own personal message, a message of reassurance and promise. His message to Moses and to the people through Moses is, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. I am with you. I am your covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And then he explains what he has done and what he will do. And we see part of that over there on our, on our poster. Uh, as I've said before, we try to select a couple of passages and put them up in here. And that's one of them, Exodus 6, 6 to 8. You could see it as the heart of Exodus. This is the personal message of Yahweh given to his people, given to Moses. And Mo- he tells Moses to give it to the people. <clears throat> it is a message of God's identity, of God's past promises and faithfulness, and of what God will do in redeeming His people. But as we saw last week, the response of Moses and the people to this glorious revelation of God is, to say the least, less than satisfying. 
The response is pretty disappointing. Verse 9, the people of Israel did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. You could not get a more glorious, God-exalting message, a more hopeful, reassuring message than what you get at the beginning of chapter 6, than what Moses says to the Israelites. But despite all of that, the people are so crushed by their burdens that they do not listen to Moses. And maybe you've seen that in your own life. Maybe you've become so crushed under the weight of life that it doesn't matter what anyone says to you. It doesn't matter what you read. You, you may, someone may have recommended a book to you and, and, and talked about how wonderful it is. And you read that book and your, your heart is just so cold Your mind is just so negative that it just seems to bounce right off. Well, know that the Lord is still there. Know that the Lord overcomes that level of coldness and dryness and beat downness. So that was the response of the people. Verse 9, verses 11 to 12, we get Moses' response. God says, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. Moses doesn't say from that point, wow, God, look at what you've just said about yourself. You are so glorious and so mighty. You are so faithful and so true, so loving, so kind, so present with your people. Yes, Lord, here I go. That's not what Moses says. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, The people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. In other words, Moses reverts all the way back to the burning bush. He goes all the way back to his insecure objection. Despite all that God has said in revealing himself. And this this passage in chapter 6 we we did two weeks ago, it's been called the, the core of Old Testament theology. All that God has revealed and said and reminded his people of, and all Moses can say is, but, but God, I can't. I just can't do it. I can't speak well. And how is Pharaoh going to listen to me? We ended the last sermon on Exodus by looking at God's insistence that Moses and Aaron press on with the mission. Listen to this. God does insist. God is insistent on his will. Verse 13, but the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge or a command about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Israel. Egypt. So in response to the people, in response to Moses' calling out to God, Moses' complaint to God, in response to Moses' objection, that is what the Lord says. Get on with it. Go and do what I have charged you, what I have commanded you to do. One commentator Dwayne Garrett puts it this way, no matter how unhappy we are with the situation or how greatly we are aware of our limitations, there comes a point that we simply 
have to obey. That ultimately is what God expects. God expects that of his people. It is a non-negotiable thing. The Bible is filled with commands from God, reminding us, telling us, That because of God's grace, because of what he has done, as we see in chapter 6, because of who he is, because of the fact that he will be with us, because of what he has called us to, we must go and do. We must obey the Lord. That is what it means to be the people of God, regardless of what we face. Today, as we continue in chapter 6, we come to a genealogy, as has already been said, maybe not the most exciting passage on the surface. Uh, Maybe you think, oh man, time to get on my phone. A genealogy. Really? Uh, I remember when we were coming up to uh, the new building, and we were going to uh, have our first service in the new building. Uh, this building is September of 2019, and uh, you know the, the thought obviously occurred to me to do some other kind of sermon. But of course, I'm not a fan of that. The, the idea is we just go right through the the book that we are in, and so it didn't seem to me reasonable at all to move for, to another place because we were moving to another building that we would simply this Sunday pick up where we left off in Madras Middle School last Sunday. And uh, I was, though, hoping that our first sermon in the new building would not be the genealogy of Esau. And I was thinking that that might happen. And I was thinking, that's not ideal, but it will be all right. Of course, it wasn't. It ended up being uh, the, uh, the passage. We ended up getting to uh, the passage about Judah and Tamar. Maybe not that much better, uh, but at least it was not a genealogy. So here we are today again at a genealogy, and maybe not the most exciting, but nonetheless filled with, I think, riches for our edification. Details and things that we can see in the big picture, and then some of the details that will help us to grow in our faith. All Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable For our building up in Christ. Profitable for making us fully equipped, ready for every good work. And that includes our genealogy for today in Exodus chapter 6. The title for the sermon this morning is A Pause Before the Plagues. And you'll see that up here on the screen. A Pause Before the Plagues. This genealogy functions as a pause in the narrative. The narrative has been moving along. And then we come to this pause. It sort of hits the pause button. A genealogy stops the narrative and really takes us back into the past. We'll see that it brings us into the future as well, but it does constitute a pause. The focus is on Moses and Aaron, as you would expect, establishing who exactly these two men are before God uses them in the great contest with Pharaoh and the great liberation of God's people. So sort of putting very clearly in place 
who these two men are who are about to stand before, before Pharaoh and the words will be heard, in a sense, let the contest begin. The contest for Pharaoh's glory and the gods of Egypt's glory or Yahweh's glory. That's what's at stake in the book of Exodus. Will the people serve Pharaoh or will they serve Yahweh, the living God, their covenant-keeping God? And so the pause gives us an opportunity to see who exactly Moses and Aaron are. And this genealogical material taken together with verses 26 to 30, this pause in the narrative before the plagues leaves us with four major considerations. So these will be our points for today. Let me direct you up to the screen here. Four main considerations as we try to take in this genealogy, both in terms of the big picture and in terms of the details and the text that comes immediately after it, verses 26 to 30. So here they are. Providential preservation. We get these four things. Providential preservation, legitimate lineage, priesthood preparation, and imperfect instruments. That, those are four considerations that we find in this passage. If you would go ahead and stand with me. Let's read God's word together. Since this does constitute a pause from what we've seen so far, and I've already explained uh, and cited some of the verses leading up to it, I'm going to begin reading in verse 14. This is the word of God. This list of names is the word of God. These are the heads of their father's houses. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hetron, and Carmi. These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Yemuel, Yamin, Ohad, Yakin, Sohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Itzar, Hebron, and Uziel. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Itzar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. The sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elsaphon, and Zithri. Aaron took as his wife Elisheva, the daughter of Aminadab, and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadav, Abihu, Eleazar, Ithamar, the sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Pinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. By the way, the word hosts 
means battalions or armies. It's a military picture, and it's an anticipation of the fact that God will bring out his people to take conquest, to go on conquest in Canaan. Verse 27, it was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. And then verse 30, going back to what we had read before, but Moses said to the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? You can go ahead and be seated. Let's pray to God and ask for his help. Let's ask him to illuminate his word, as Stan prayed earlier, and that uh, he would work in all of our hearts, each of us, that none of us would come here this morning and be a part of this gathering without being impacted, substantially impacted, by the work of the Holy Spirit in the inner man, inner woman, in that inner being, inner person of the heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us time together today to gather and sing your praises, to pray to you through song and meditate on your word through song and edify our brothers and sisters through song. Lord, and to pray and go through the Lord's Supper and to be instructed from your word through preaching. God, we thank you for the preached word over thousands of years as as you have edified your people through preaching. I know in my own life how much my soul has been built up and fed through the preaching of your word. And Lord, we pray that this time would not be in vain, that it would be an opportunity for each of us to grow closer to you in intimacy and relationship, Lord, and our love for you, our desire to know you and serve you. Lord, that it would also be a time where we would be compelled by the power of your spirit and by love for you and by a recognition of your grace on our behalf, Lord, that we would be compelled to go out and to do precisely as your word calls us to do, that we would be faithful on account of your faithfulness to us. Lord, thank you for our story, the story of the people of God, the the people whom we've been grafted into. We thank you that though Our ancestors were without hope in the world. We have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We thank you that the story that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve is our story. We thank you that we have been made partakers of your people Israel. And Lord, that we are reading the early days of our history here in this passage, even in this genealogy. We ask that you would edify us, God, that you would strengthen us in our faith. And would we leave here more committed to you? more trusting in you. Would you be with us now by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to begin first with providential preservation. That's the first observation that we make as we go through. Uh, This is not one of those texts where you really are going through and taking it sequentially in chunks. Sometimes it is better to take it uh, more thematically as it, as it unfolds, and a genealogy is particularly that way. But the first thing that we see is providential preservation. Before we get into any of the details of this genealogy, we have to take a step back from it and look at what this genealogy most fundamentally is. You know, Scripture is often like that. Sometimes we need to take a step forward into Scripture with our pen and uh, going down deep into the trees and even the, 
the lines on the leaves. And then other times we need to take a step back and take in the whole piece, the whole thing. And actually with any scripture, we need to do both. Anytime we come to a text in God's word, we need both zooming in and zooming out. But as we zoom out, as we take a step back, we see what this genealogy most fundamentally is. It is not just a list of names. It is not just an instance of record keeping. That would be pretty boring. Yes, it is both of these things, but it is so much more than that. Here we have a testament. I want you to think of it that way. This list of names is a testament. It is a testament to God's providential preservation. You should read this list, and you would have, if you had been an Israelite living in that time, you should read this list, take a breath, and bring praises to God for the fact that this list is even here. It is a testament to God's providential preservation. We have been reading about an enslaved people. They came to Egypt as a large family, 70 strong. They were sojourners in Canaan. They were wandering around different places, not settled apart from this cave, this burial cave and the land and trees on it, on that land that Abraham bought from the Hittites in order to bury his wife and then subsequent generations buried there. Apart from that, the Israelites knew no home in Canaan. And then they moved to Egypt, being rescued from famine by God's providential work in the life of Joseph, incredible providence, bringing them to Egypt 70 strong. Jacob, or Israel, and his 12 sons with some of their descendants. God in Egypt grew their numbers exponentially, And out of fear, the Egyptians enslaved them. So Joseph was a prince over Egypt. He was a great ruler. He was second only to Pharaoh. And in fact, Pharaoh pretty much made him a a little Pharaoh in Egypt, this foreigner. The people are protected and watched after. They are given the very best of everything until Joseph dies. And when Joseph dies, there's a new ruler in town. There's a new people ruling Egypt. And they begin to oppress God's people because they are afraid of them. They're growing and growing and growing exponentially. Not in some sort of supernatural way, like babies are just sort of appearing, that sort of thing. It's natural, but it is incredibly remarkable. It is hugely providential. They are growing and they continue to grow despite the enslavement that the Egyptians put them under. For 430 years, they have been living in Egypt as foreigners. When you get to the time of Moses, standing before Pharaoh, it has been 430 years since Jacob's feet set foot in Egypt. For the great majority of that time, they have been slaves. They have endured ruthless oppression and infanticide, and they have endured these things for centuries. That's who we're talking about. How is it that such an oppressed people has any form, and I've talked about this a little before, 
How is it that such an oppressed people has any form of organization, record-keeping, retained heritage? How is it that Moses, the author of Exodus, has any genealogical material to draw from? How is it that we have tribes, fathers, houses, and clans, as we read here in chapter 6? How is this possible Given the practical decimation of the people under the oppression that they have endured enslaved to the Egyptians. When have they had time to keep their own records? How have they kept these previous records? The answer is simply God. The answer must be God. God has providentially preserved his people. Though it might seem boring and tedious to read through this list of names, and certainly not doesn't come easy to the tongue to read through this list of very, very uh, strange names. I think my favorite one is Mushy uh, there in this genealogy. It certainly does not come natural to us. Though it may seem that way, what we need to understand is that this genealogy glistens with God's character. Everywhere we look in this list of names, we are seeing sparkling up from the page a testament to God's character. His faithfulness, kindness, grace, love, providence, protection, and purpose. His providential preservation of his people. This is a testament to evidence of God's gracious preservation. What we need to also see is that it points us to Christ. Since it is through the preservation of this people in Egypt and throughout history that God would send the Jewish Messiah, that God would send the Christ, the Savior of the world. You ask me, do you get all of that from just taking a step back and and looking at this list of weird names? Yes! God's glorious character is here. The preservation of the line to Christ is also implied here. Every line between every name should remind us of God's great plan to save us and our children and our children's children. The story of our salvation must be traced back through this list of strange names in Exodus chapter 6. So that's the first thing that I hope you will get from this and understand is the providential preservation that this demonstrates. Secondly, we have legitimate lineage. Now that we've taken a step back to look at the whole to look at the mere fact of the genealogy, right? That's what we've seen. We haven't looked at the details. We've just looked at the mere fact that the genealogy is here. We now need to get into some of the details. It begins like a list of Jacob's sons with their immediate descendants. So verse 14, these are the heads of their father's houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, dot, dot, dot. Then in verse 15, as you would expect, It moves to Jacob's next son, Simeon. So we read, the sons of Simeon, dot, dot, dot. And it continues in verse 16 with Levi, 
But here we need to see two differences. So when we get to Levi, we have Reuben, firstborn, secondborn, Simeon. Just go back uh, to uh, Leah and Rachel and Bilhah and Zilpah. Back to Genesis. For all of the details there, you can go back and, and look at that. But in verse 16 with Levi, we begin to see some differences with what came before. First, now we are told that we are going to be given the names of the sons of Levi according to their generation. So the language shifts, and now we're told that this will be according to their generation. So this list, we're being told, is going to go deeper generationally than those of Reuben and Simeon. And, of course, we don't get any more detail about Reuben and Simeon apart from their immediate descendants. They're the next line down. So that's the first difference. The second difference we see is that no other sons of Jacob are mentioned after Levi. It's, it's a strange genealogy in that way. Reuben, one more line of, de, one line of descendants under Reuben. Simeon, one line of descendants under him. And then Levi with this robust description of the generations. And then it ends with Levi, he is the focus of the genealogy. And in fact, mention of Reuben and Simeon were only to get us to Levi. That was the whole purpose. He could have started with Levi, but it was customary to take seriously birth order. And so Reuben is mentioned, and then Simeon is mentioned, and then Levi. And we see that that's where it ends. At the end of verse 25, we read, These are the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites by their clans. That's where the genealogy ends. It doesn't go on to Judah and so on and so forth. So it is clear to us that this is not a comprehensive genealogy by any means, but rather a spotlight. You could see it as a spotlight on the descendants of Levi, one of Jacob or Israel's 12 sons. And the reason for this focus on Levi comes in verse 20. So look with me there at verse 20. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister. So yes, he marries his aunt, which would have, which in Leviticus 18 was uh, stated as unlawful. But of course, the law had not been given yet. And so he marries. And we, we, re- we read earlier of Abram marrying his half-sister and so forth. Amram took as his wife, Jochebed, his father's sister, And she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. This is the heart of this genealogy, the lineage of Moses and Aaron. That's the point. That's why this genealogy is here. We see this in the verses that come immediately after the genealogy in verses 26 to 30. So there we read verse 26. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord spoke. Verse 27. It was they, this Moses and this Aaron. So do you see what the purpose, the big picture purpose of this genealogy is? It is to establish who exactly Aaron and Moses are, to legitimize them and to root them in the history of God's people. Otherwise, it would not be here. Who stands at the head of the genealogy? Well, we get that back in verse 14, Israel or Jacob. Reuben is the firstborn of Israel. So ultimately, this is a genealogy going back to Israel. Moses and Aaron are presented as authentic Israelites. They can trace their lineage back through both their father and their mother. By the way, this is God's providence. The fact that Aaron and Moses' father 
uh, married his aunt means that both from both sides, Aaron and Moses are from the tribe of Levi. So the purpose, as I said, is to legitimize both of them and to firmly establish them before the contest and liberation are underway. Notice that. We're going to get something similar next week. This passage this week and next week's passage are meant to set up the plagues. So this week we get a, a pause before the plagues and next week we'll see the preparation for the plagues with the serpent as they stand before Pharaoh and as we see Aaron and Moses finally getting on with the work that God has called them to do. I want to say a quick word here about this genealogy. If you begin to study it and look at it, you will quickly realize that if you add up the lifespans, you'll find that it falls far below the 430 years that the Egyptians spent in Egypt. Don't have a crisis of faith. Uh, don't lose yourself in that. You, you, you look at that, you read that, and you go, oh no! The math does not add up. It's not 430 years. What's going on here? We get the lifespans here, and later we'll be told Moses is 80 and his brother Aaron is 83. If you take the lifespans of Levi and, and Kohath and Amram, and then you look at Moses and Aaron, you don't get 430 years. What's going on? We're told in Exodus 12, 40, the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. Well, here... Moses is presented as the great-grandson of Levi. Notice that in the genealogy. He's presented as the great-grandson of Levi on his father's side and the grandson of Levi on his mother's side. So according to this genealogy, as it is written, Moses, is, Moses calls Levi grandpa through his mother. Well, it is clear to us that this genealogy has been compressed and we find this throughout the Old Testament in genealogies. It, it's a, a form called, it's a, it's, a, it's a literary device called telescoping or compressing. Uh, this genealogy has been, uh, it has gaps. The purpose is not to be comprehensive, but to establish that Moses and Aaron come from Levi through Kohath, Levi's son. And so scholars debate, commentators debate, where are the gaps? Are there two Amrams here? Is there the first Amram and then his descendant Amram, who's the actual father of Moses and Aaron? And there are all sorts of proposals for where the gaps are and how you understand it. But it is clear to us here when we interpret Scripture with Scripture, which we must always do, that this is not meant to be a comprehensive list of every single generation from Levi to Moses and Aaron. It is non-comprehensive. It has gaps. Another indicator that this genealogy is compressed comes from 1 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 20 to 29. There we find out that Joshua was in the 11th generation from Joseph. Well, that matches. That matches the 430 years. The 11th generation from Joseph we have there at the time of Joshua. That is what we would compare with this genealogy. The spotlight is on the Levitical lineage of Moses and Aaron. That's the point. But this genealogy doesn't just look backwards. It also looks forward. And that brings us to our next point, priesthood 
preparation. We've seen providential preservation, legitimate lineage, and then thirdly, this text, this genealogy gives us priesthood preparation. As Stan read earlier from Numbers 3, the Levites were to be the protectors and the servants of the sacrificial system. What an incredible job the Levites had as they're taken collectively as the firstborn, and they are given this responsibility to oversee and to carry out the work of the tabernacle and later the temple. They were to be the guardians of the corporate worship of God. Remember, that's what's most important. When Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, they tell the Pharaoh that the people are to be let go so that they can go and worship in the wilderness. That's what the people of God are to do. That is our MO. That's what we are at the core. We are worshipers. And the Levites were responsible for overseeing all of that. And the office of high priest would come through the line of Aaron. And so we get a focus here on Aaron's descendants, on the future priesthood. So this genealogy is not just meant to lean backwards to root Moses and Aaron before we come to the plagues, before we come to them actually carrying out the work that God has sent them to do. But it also leans forward to the time of the people who would be reading Exodus. The first readers of Exodus already are enjoying the benefits of the priesthood. And so what what this does is it reaches forward to the time of the people into the practice of the sacrificial system. So we get Aaron's descendants here. Verse 23, Aaron took as his wife, Elisheva, the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. Verse 25, Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Pinehas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clan. So you see there the emphasis on the high priestly office. And here we are taken up to the time of the conquest with Pinehas. Moses is establishing the priesthood rooted in Israel through Levi, through Aaron. Interestingly, if you look at this last name, it's the last name in the genealogy, we get Pinehas. And we read of his zeal against idolatry in Numbers chapter 25, verses 7 to 8. We read there that he kills the offenders, the idolatrous offenders, in order to remove a plague that had fallen on Israel. And so the readers of this are also, as one commentator put it, sort of retroactively or retrospectively, they're looking back. And Moses and Aaron are not just being authenticated and legitimized in a backwards kind of way, leaning back into Israel and Levi, but they're also being authenticated into the future. As the first readers are reading this and later readers, and they know of Pinehas and his faithfulness, Pinehas himself, in a sense, legitimizes Moses and Aaron. This emphasis on the priesthood also points us forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. These high priests that we read here were sinful and they were temporary. And it calls the reader to look for one who is greater. For the great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who brings us into the presence of God. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator. That's why as Protestants we don't have priests. Because there is one mediator between God and man. The man 
Christ Jesus. We have elders and overseers and pastors and deacons and other sorts of figures throughout the church, teachers and so forth. But we don't have priests because there is one who brings us into the presence of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater priest. He is the high priest. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 to 28, compares these Levitical priests, these Aaronic priests, with the great high priest. And it says this, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Guess what? That does, none of that applies to Aaron. None of that applies to Aaron's descendants. None of that applies to Pinehas, as faithful as he was, or any other descendant of Aaron in the high priestly line. It goes on in Hebrews, he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, going back to the, to the Mosaic law, going back to this Aaronic priesthood. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And we're told earlier in Hebrews 7 that he is not in the order of Aaron, but in the order of Melchizedek. As we read in Hebrews 7, 3, Melchizedek was without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. That would be very confusing just thrown at you, so let me just give you a little bit of explanation. In Genesis 14, uh, when Abraham goes off and he fights these, these kings and he gets his he gets his uh, nephew Lot back. Uh, there's this king that just comes out of nowhere. He's a priest king. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of peace. Uh, he's from Salem. Shalom, peace. And he comes to Abram. And Abram gives him tithes. He doesn't have genealogy. He just sort of comes out of nowhere. And he's presented as a superior, superior to Aaron. And what the writer of Hebrews says is that this figure, Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, is a type of Christ. Christ is not in this weak, sinful line in his priesthood. He's not an Aaronic priest. He's superior to the Aaronic priests. He is like Melchizedek, having no genealogy connected to Aaron, but being a priest in this order and a priest forever. We're not told anything about Melchizedek's Death, he just sort of comes and goes. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. So as we read about this priesthood here, we recognize that the priesthood of the old covenant could not bring salvation. But the priesthood of the Christ, the one who goes into the holy place, who offers himself as a sacrifice for sin, who places himself, his very own blood, on the mercy seat once and for all for sinners, he alone can act as the high priest for the people of God. So know this, people of God, you have a high priest who stands making intercession for you right now at every moment. At every moment of failure, at every moment of difficulty, 
In every moment of confession of sin, we have a high priest who stands before the throne of God, and he is not like Aaron, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, Pinehas, any of them. He is perfect, and he has offered a once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Finally, we get imperfect instruments. We've seen providential preservation, God's work in giving the people cohesion and organization and preserving them, legitimate lineage as we see Moses and Aaron rooted in a priesthood preparation as we're looking into the future of where Aaron's descendants will lead and the priesthood that they will shepherd along. And then finally, we have imperfect instruments. Look at verses 26 to 30 as we finish up. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt. This Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? As this passage comes to a close, we see the language of verses 10 to 13 repeated. It is this Moses and this Aaron that the narrative was was referring to. It was this Moses who is still offering objections to God's mission. This Moses who is still focused on his own inabilities. He's still focused on what he can't do. And what circumstantially and logically as he sees it can't happen. And what this does, I think, after reading through this genealogy is it reminds the reader that God uses imperfect instruments to carry out his plan. It begins with Levi. Do you remember if you were here when we were going through Genesis? We came to Genesis Genesis 34. And we read this story about how Jacob and his son settle outside of Shechem. And and there's this man there who rapes the sister of Levi and Simeon. It's the full sister of Levi and Simeon. And so what do Levi and Simeon do? Well, they trick the people into getting circumcised. All the men get circumcised. And uh, when they're healing from their circumcision, while they're healing from their circumcision, the worst, the day of the most pain, when they're most incapacitated, uh, they kill all the men in the, in the place. Every man. They kill every single man. They slaughter the people. Simeon and Levi. Of course, Jacob, at the end of his life, when he's putting his hands on all of his sons, he remembers this. And he gives, not a blessing, but a condemnation to both Simeon and Levi for what they did in their cruelty and their violence in killing all of those men in Shechem. Well, here we see Levi. This is the line through which God would bring the priesthood, showing us that God uses imperfect instruments in his grace. And what about Aaron? Aaron is the high priest. He's over all the high priests as the patriarch, as it were, of the high priests. And it is the same Aaron, this same Aaron, who later in Exodus we'll read, builds the people a golden calf. And he can say that the golden calf just jumped out of the fire, but it didn't just jump out of the fire. 
Aaron made it. He told the people to gather their gold. And he made the people an idol. It's this Aaron, this very imperfect instrument, through whom God would carry out his purposes. And of course, we've got what you could call the bad guys of the list here. We've got Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10 who are destroyed by God, literally consumed by fire as they're standing in, in front of the altar, as they're making these, these strange sacrifices to God, as they are offering strange fire to God. They're consumed by God where they stand. And then we have the, in the Levitical line, we have Korah. Korah also can... Uh, can brag that he's part of this Levitical line. And so out of that, he starts a rebellion against Moses in Numbers 16. And what does God do? Well, like Nadab and Abihu, he, he uh, consumed him. He opened up the earth and swallowed him with the earth. These are what you could call the bad guys of the list. But nonetheless, this is the Levitical line. This is the line through which God would bring his priests and those who would care for his worship. And of course, as we see here, we have Moses still objecting, still focused on his own weakness. This was a line filled with sin. Backwards and forwards, filled with sin. And yet God determined to use it to bring about his great plan of redemption. This list of names, the whole Bible, the history of the Christian church, and this room right here is filled with imperfect instruments. We are imperfect instruments of Yahweh, but God is nonetheless accomplishing his purposes through his people. And so God is accomplishing his purposes through you, Christian. Uh, the dawn of the age, the, the ages, the end of the ages has dawned upon us. All of the Old Testament written for our instruction. We are closer to the coming of Christ and the consummation of all things than any other people of God up to this point. God wants to use us. God has called us to be used for his glory in all of our spheres of life. Yes, we're imperfect, but he calls us to be his instruments none the less. We're also reminded here as we see these imperfect instruments, all of them across the board, Moses and Aaron in the middle, going all the way back to Levi, and of course we didn't even talk about Jacob. And then moving forward into the line of Aaron, imperfection, sin, imperfection, sin, all of this meant to remind us that there is only one perfect instrument of God, and that is the incarnate Lord, the incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. And that is why all throughout the New Testament, we get this language, and you've heard it many times, you've seen it many times, through whom? Through him. It is through Christ that God made the heavens and the earth. It is through Christ that God brought his plan into existence. It is through Christ that God preserved his people. We even read of Christ's presence in the wilderness. And it is through Christ that he has brought to himself people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. He alone, he alone is the one perfect instrument through whom 
God brings people to himself. So yes, we're imperfect, but look to the one who is truly perfect. He fills us. He is with us. He is conforming us into his image. And one day he will come back for us and we will be presented to him collectively as his bride. Perfect, spotless, without blemish to be with him forever. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this passage that you've given us today to chew on, to think about, to meditate upon. God, we thank you for the preservation of your people. We thank you for the, the history of, of your people as we see Moses and Aaron and, Lord, all the people that you've used. Lord, so many people whom you've used to bring us to this moment, to this moment of being present with your people, this moment of uh, having our, our kids here with us in church, this moment of singing your praises, this moment of uh, prayer. God, you have been so faithful to us and you've used so many. We thank you for that, God. And yet we see that all those whom you have used are imperfect. And we too are imperfect. But we thank you, God, that there is one who is perfect. And that this lineage, this genealogy, this seed theology, this pointing forward to the priesthood, all of this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Father, for our Savior. We thank you that through him we come boldly into your presence in prayer. We come to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. We come to you, Father, knowing that you hear us, you love us, and you will always be with us. Lord, thank you for this time together. We pray that you would continue to be glorified through our service even through the announcements, Lord, that every aspect of our time together today would be glorifying to you. And we ask, Father, now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that this would be a time of reverence, a time of reflection, and a time of genuine love for your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.